there was raptors, mm-hmm. and so many of them in one place, hawks, eagles, whatever. They're here because the Creator, for whatever reason, this, this is where they congregate. This is where they've been for who knows how long. All of these lands, these canyons, especially the Snake River, is an area where resources have been for our people, always. That's why you'll find a lot of sites along the Snake River corridor. Campsites, fishing sites, there's burials. It's because this is where life is. Water is life, and that's where our people survive. In this entire area, anywhere you go, you're on the homelands of some tribe. That was the voice of Ted Howard, chairman and former cultural resources director for the Shoshone and Paiute tribes of the Duck Valley Reservation. Although the Shoshone and Paiute people once lived throughout southwest Idaho, the Duck Valley Reservation is about 290,000 acres, a little over half the size of the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, along the southern border of Idaho with Nevada. Up until this point in the series, the focus of our storytelling has been very one-sided. We began our story with Morley Nelson's arrival in southwest Idaho in the late 1940s, but just 100 years before Morley moved to this area, its human population looked entirely different. You're listening to Common Land a new podcast series produced by the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Common Land tells the stories behind protected areas, and in Season 1, we are exploring the creation story of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, an area that once served as the lifeblood for a thriving human society. Archaeology has long fascinated me, and as someone who grew up surrounded by the ideas of Western science, it's my inclination to look to this field of study when seeking information about the ancient history of the Shoshone and Paiute people who lived in and around the Snake River Canyon. But Ted Howard's words of advice to me were, Don't talk to archaeologists. Because <laughs> they'll tell you all kinds of theories. They don't know none. I just laugh at them sometimes because of all of the stuff they come up with. I said, where the hell did you come up with that? You know, I think the, the only way to learn is, is to have a little bit more interaction with tribes and also to understand, try to understand what tribes are saying rather than trying to change what they heard. Dr. Mark Plew is an archaeologist and anthropologist with Boise State University who has worked extensively in the Snake River Canyon region. Most of the time that I've been in Idaho, um, there was very little 
uh, communication with tribes. Um, there was no, I think there was no sense on the part of archaeologists that that was something that was really necessary. Uh, and so there was no consultation whatsoever. Anthropology's history is largely colonial. We come in and we're recording them. And this, is, this happens worldwide and often leading to the demise of individual indigenous peoples. I'm Stephen Sims. I'm a professor emeritus uh, at Utah State University. Uh, my specialties in uh, anthropology uh, is the American Desert West uh, and human evolutionary ecology. We routinely interact with uh, tribes now. That wasn't happening when I started in the early 70s. The lack of interest that the archaeological community had in consulting with tribes at the time when Mark Plue and Stephen Sims were beginning their careers goes a long way towards explaining Ted Howard's mistrust of archaeologists. But the lack of trust goes much deeper. One of the strongest points of contention between the archaeological community and many tribal governments and Native Americans has been the question of when humans first arrived in the Americas. Indians do not support the migration theory. Uh, the, the land bridge, we do not support that stuff. But we believe in, and tribes believe that this is where the Creator put us. This is where we've, we were created. And there's a lot of oral histories that, that will tell you about those things. The land bridge theory has been around for decades. While the details have changed over time, the theory remains almost universally accepted within the scientific community, despite continued strong opposition to this idea within Native American communities. The theory goes like this. During the last ice age, lower sea levels created a land bridge connecting what is now eastern Russia with modern-day Alaska. This allowed humans and many wildlife species to move between Asia and the Americas. We don't know much about that early colonization, but a little bit more is being found uh, north in what is now Alaska, and that it appears that there may be some very early colonization 20,000 years ago into Alaska, and then what's called the Beringian Pause. They might not have been able to get south because of uh, ice from the uh, height of the last ice age, uh, but nobody's really quite sure. But then it looks like that there's a at least one, and the argument now is accommodating more than one migration south, one along the coast and one on the interior. But the convention was that, you know, they'd come over in waves across the Bering Strait, you know, uh, 10, 12,000 years ago and so forth. We now think that there are probably a number of different migrations, the DNA evidence relating to early uh, Paleo-Indian populations, as we refer to them, suggests that there are probably at least two gene pools that arrive, probably at somewhat different times. Although the details continue to change as new archaeological evidence is discovered and analyzed, there is scientific consensus that humans first arrived in the Americas via this land bridge. It is also true, however, that the land bridge theory has been misappropriated by racist ideologies and used to discredit and diminish Native Americans' rightful claims of land ownership by falsely portraying them as recent arrivals on the continent. And so the respectful way for, I think, everybody in this to, to, uh, to be is to avoid being too ideological, where this is my belief and you must respect it. I agree with that, but this is my belief. You have to accept it as true. 
I don't have to do that because we have our own history, uh, often recent history. In fact, we may be living it in American politics right now where things that are deeply held beliefs simply didn't happen that way. The reality is that there remain many unanswered questions about how, when, and why the first people arrived in the Americas. But it's very clear that people are in the Great Basin. Uh, Paisley Five Mile Point Cave in eastern Oregon uh, has clearly got solid dates in the mid-14,000 uh, years ago area. Paisley Cave is just a few hundred miles from the Snake River Canyon, and it is the site of the oldest definitively dated evidence of a human presence in North America. Yeah, people were here 15,000. Yeah. Probably. 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 Right. It's entirely possible that, you know, people could have been here uh, and actually witnessed the Bonneville episode. You know, could have been. The Bonneville episode referenced by Dr. Plew is an important geological marker in Idaho and the Great Basin. Around 14,500 years ago, as glaciers were receding and the Ice Age was nearing its end, a natural dam holding in the waters of Lake Bonneville in northern Utah was breached, sending a flood of epic proportions down the Snake River. Ty Korn, archaeologist and historian for Idaho Power, explains. When what used to be Lake Bonneville, where you know basically the Great Salt Lake is now, broke, yeah, it's responsible for almost everything you see here. And in, on, on kind of like a joke large scale, I mean, it's easy to walk next to a river and see gravel bars here and there and some riffles in the sand there. But here, it's, it's an order of magnitude larger. I mean, landforms that look like terraces, uh, you know, in Boise are actually the result of a single catastrophic flood event. It's estimated that at the peak of the flood, 33 million cubic feet per second of water was flowing through the Snake River Canyon. If you remember our discussion about water levels at Swan Falls Dam from episode 4, you'll know that currently the river is managed to maintain a flow of 3,900 CFS at Swan Falls. A huge volume of water over a relatively short period of time, you know, flooding through this area. I don't, I don't think it went over the rim here, but it wasn't too far down from it. And there is a good chance that the distant ancestors of the Shoshone Paiute people witnessed this event. I mention this to provide some context and to discredit the idea that Native Americans are recent migrants to this region. In order to interact with the Native American point of view, everybody needs to respect time. And they, in a broad sense, have always been here. When you're starting at over 13,000 years ago, you're dealing with 430 human generations. Nobody has a genealogy that long. It's, I like to think of it as the light coming on to the continent of human presence. The rub being is that we have no historical analogies of humans moving into regions that are not occupied by other humans. That only gets to happen once. Sixteen, fifteen thousand years ago, the process begins sort of in stops and starts. Uh, it's widespread though, but by Clovis, you have a continent-wide, at least for North America, 
a continent-wide cultural tradition that's very distinctive. And it lasts from about 13,000 years ago down to about uh, 12,500. The name Clovis comes from one particular archaeological site in New Mexico, but the term is used by archaeologists to reference a continent-wide cultural tradition, which is defined by a distinctive style of projectile point. These Clovis points have been found at archaeological sites across North America, but they begin to change around 12,500 years ago, when a variety of factors, including dramatic declines in large mammal populations, started to lead to local differentiations in culture and toolmaking. By four to 5,000 um, you know, years ago, um, you have a pattern emerging that's probably relatively similar to what we find in the, early, the most recent time frame prehistorically, uh, which is common in the Grand the Birds of Prey area. Basically, um, you know, by 5,000 years ago, I think we could re reasonably describe most of the populations as being seasonally transhuman, meaning that they're just moving from one location to another in a, a series of rounds. Ethnographically, historically, as we know, something about the local populations, the uh, Western Shoshone, the Northern Paiute in this area, we know that many of them wintered in these larger canyon areas, the Owyhee, uh, the Snake, and so forth, and then seasonally made these movements classically to, you know, Fairfield and Campus Prairie, that kind of thing, and then kind of cycled back or circled back to the major canyons in the fall winter period. Uh, that pattern of transhumance is one that do doesn't really go away, even into the later period of time. Our people did not live on reservations. We were not farmers. People moved with the resources. You know, then in the summertime when it gets warm, they go up into the higher mountains to, to gather resources, you know, various resources that are ready for harvest, whether that be roots, you know, choke cherries, uh, you know, some groundhog, deer, and, and they go off and, and, and do that. And when the salmon are running, they come back down to the rivers. In the wintertime, they go back down to lower elevations. And that's the way our people live. We live with the earth. Our people always say, take what you need, but always leave enough that it will always be there. There are some sites that appear to be habitation sites, although they're probably short term. Keeping in mind that most of the folks, um, uh, including the, the, the known historic populations of the area, they're highly mobile, uh, fairly uh, diffuse distributions. Um, so they're hunters and gatherers, and foragers in particular, so they're moving about a good deal. There are some structures, um, prehistoric structures. These are residential structures that have been identified in the area. And there are actually a couple of them within the NCA. While there are a few discrepancies between the descriptions that you just heard from Ted Howard and Dr. Plue of the culture and lifeways of the Shoshone and Paiute people and their ancestors in the Snake River Plains region, points of contention between tribal governments and the archaeological community remain. And you just heard one of them in Dr. Plue's reference to prehistoric structures in the NCA. Well, prehistory is different in different places, you know. Sure. Prehistory here is quite a bit apart from what it is in the American Southwest or certain areas of the eastern woodlands, you know. So it depends entirely. Uh, it's 
formerly uh, a period anywhere in the world prior to written records. These areas are, our sites are referred to as prehistoric. We don't have a prehistory. We have one continuous history. And these sites that they call prehistoric are contemporary sites. Yeah, I, I try to use ancient history. Uh, pre, whether it's prehistory or pre-literate, to the expert, they can seem benign. But to other people, they invoke the Western concept of progress. So it, it, the term gets loaded, and uh, there are fundamental anthropological differences between societies that use oral transmission of their history and written. But beyond that, it's all history. So it's more accurate to use the term for America, pre-Columbian or ancient history of a tribe, because it respects them as having real history. Uh, oral history is powerful. It can actually have tremendous time depth, but then all of us of the Western tradition should know this because we have Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, which weren't even told for 500 years after they supposedly happened. This dispute over terminology exemplifies in many ways the contentious relationship between tribes and those seeking to uncover the history of those tribes from a Western science perspective. But then you ask an archaeologist about his theory and ask another one his theory, they don't agree. These disagreements between archaeologists that Ted Howard points out are not restricted to terminology. One of the most contentious topics in the field of American archaeology is the impact of disease on Native American populations in the first few hundred years after first contact with Europeans. So continentally, uh, yes, disease depopulation uh, was significant. But just how significant? In 1910, James Mooney, a highly respected anthropologist with the Smithsonian Institution, concluded that the population of North America before European contact was 1.15 million inhabitants, an estimate that was based on the accounts of the first white settlers to interact with Native American societies all across the continent. This estimate remained largely unquestioned until 1966, when Henry Dobbins calculated the population of North and South America to be between 90 and 112 million people before European contact. Dobbins's research revealed the impact of waves of disease that spread throughout North and South America, largely before any Europeans reached these areas. The disease spread faster than the European settlement attempts, meaning that earlier population estimates like Mooney's claim that only 1.15 million people lived in North America were skewed because they relied on the accounts of the first white settlers to arrive in an area. There are over a dozen different diseases. It's not just smallpox and measles. So they're getting hit again and again. So yes, this has massive influence on the continent. But the scale of this impact remains a highly contentious topic in the field of archaeology, and many experts, like Dr. Mark Plew, argue that the hunter-gatherer communities in the Great Basin region were too small and dispersed to be impacted by disease at all. For the most part, these are very small populations, and we don't have anything in the archaeological record that would suggest anything more than, you know, that the average domicile is probably, yeah, 8 to 12 people most of the, most of the time. Western Idaho, uh, the Hawaii country in particular, had a population density of probably one person per 16 square miles. There's a lot of people who never saw anybody else out there.
could have been some epidemics here. You have to imagine that people in our region, uh, from southern Idaho on south, uh, they didn't live in the same groups all year. The groups were constantly fissioning and fusioning, but sometimes of the year, uh, the salmon uh, drives on the snake are a good example, and all the way down to Columbia. They get huge group sizes certain times of the year. The same with rabbit drives in the early winter. And when you've got a disease vector and you've got 100, 200 people in the pl one place at one time, now you have an opportunity to have a disease event. The importance of these large gatherings in Shoshone Paiute culture is reiterated by Ted Howard. The Boise area, they say there was camps that stretched for miles at times along that river. I mean, we do know that, you know, ethnographically, uh, in a number of areas in the West, but here as well, that people did aggregate, uh, you know, during the winter period. Now, whether or not that means they're living right next door to one another, that's another matter. Part of the problem is how you measure that or how you can archaeologically right. document it, demonstrate it. Right. And we have no evidence of that. The attitude behind Dr. Plew's insistence on hard archaeological evidence in order to accept the large-scale human gatherings described by Ted Howard is a very common attitude in the field of archaeology, as Stephen Sims explains. That is part of the problem that anthropology used in the early 20th century when we estimated North American Indian populations to be only about one million people north of Mexico. We were trying, to, trying so hard to be empiricists that we just counted and counted ancestors and used those literal counts as the pre-Columbian number. That's naive empiricism. You think that if you count it ever more precisely, it's somehow more true when it's actually possible to be precisely wrong. I don't know if there's any way to get a true figure or even something close, but our people were, we had many, many more people. This depopulation was swirling around all the populations around uh, the Great Basin from the Southern Snake River Plain uh, on down to this, the Mojave Desert in California. Uh, we don't know the specifics of, of the impact. So how big of an impact did disease have on the Western Shoshone and Northern Paiute people in Southwest Idaho before significant numbers of white settlers started to show up in the mid 1800s? We may never fully understand the impact of disease in this region, but we do know that those first European settlers were not seeing a Shoshone and Paiute society untouched by European influence. The Shoshone and Paiute people inhabit all of the Great Basin, from Southern California to Canada, back down to Mexico, into the Great Plains. We're, we're a big, big group of people. This is another thing we tend to do to us to these hunter-gatherer societies is we think they're so simple that they're unaware of what's going on around them. When in fact, the connections, both marriage and movement, are so broad that uh, it's like my colleague Steve Lexon, who mostly works in the Southwest, he has a line that says, 
Everybody knew everything. They may never have been to the Chumash villages in Santa Barbara, California, but they probably heard of them. They may never have seen a salmon fishing episode on the Snake River, but they heard of it. This degree of communication and connectivity between tribes means that the arrival of the first white settlers in the Great Basin would not have come as a surprise. But tragically, as more European Americans arrived, the direct persecution of the Shoshone and Paiute people intensified. You know, when the Euro-American people came, it was a new culture that came to our homeland. And they started pushing us off our lands and, and killing our people and eventually did take our lands. And uh, for them, it was a new beginning. For us, it was the end of a way of life. It was the end of the way our people lived their lives. And we're still struggling with that. The Snake River Canyon has been occupied by the Shoshone and Paiute people and their ancestors for at least 14,500 years, a place-based history with a time depth that stretches so far back it's difficult for us to comprehend. While there is much that we can learn about the ancient history of these societies through analysis of the archaeological record, as well as through the oral history traditions of the Shoshone and Paiute people, it's also clear that much of this history has been lost in large part a result of the racist attitudes and belief systems that once pervaded the field of archaeology. Although disease almost certainly had an impact on Shoshone and Paiute societies well before they had any direct interaction with European Americans, these tribes were spared the catastrophic effects of disease experienced throughout many other parts of the continent. They entered the 19th century with their cultural traditions largely intact. Sadly, this was about to change. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production support provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, Ragged Coyote, and Jennifer Jarrett. 
Our theme music is by Like a Rocket and Ragged Coyote. Additional music for this episode comes from Judy Trejo with Delgadina Gonzalez and Christina Gonzalez from their album Circle Dance Songs of the Paiute and Shoshone, as well as from Delray Strawbuck and Claude Siwash from their album Shoshone Paiute Peyote Songs. You can learn more about the Common Land Podcast and see a full credit list on our website at commonlandpodcast.com. Yeah, yeah, nah, hey.